Ten Talks podcast is powered by denanywhere.com. You guys go to denanywhere.com now, no matter where you live in the world, and you can take our classes virtually and live. Go to denanywhere.com and sign up for just $29.99 a month. You get a limited access to our classes with over 150 a month to choose from. Plus, most of them are archived, so if you can't make the exact time, you can catch them later. We still also have our workshops and our certifications now all accessible to you no matter where you are. Go to denanywhere.com. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, and I am your host and the founder of Den Meditation. And today we're talking with Adriana Limbach, who wrote this book, Tea and Cake with Demons, A Buddhist Guide to Feeling Worthy. And that is what we're discussing today, Buddhism. But it's not just Buddhism, so if that's not what interests you, this will be a great episode too. It's how can you feel worthy? How can you exist in kind of this world of binary notions of being better, owning that house, having that job, um, liking yourself more? How can we kind of start to live more in the gray? But what's great about this book, and I think this episode, is we go through kind of the teachings of Buddhism to break it down, which are very practical. Um, she's actually going to be here April 4th um, and doing a workshop and a book launch, so don't miss it. Please come, sign up now, go to our website, go to offerings, and you'll see it there. Um, and I really think you'll love her because she has such a gentle approach. And again, not only is it a gentle approach to Buddhism, but a gentle approach to life. I hope you like this episode. I'm talking with Adriana Limbach, and we're just sitting here talking about the fact she has this great book, her first book, which is Tea and Cake with Demons. Um, and she was just saying, because we were talking about it must be hard to keep talking about it, but I love that point of view that you're saying you kind of actually have a new relationship with it. Yeah, yeah. It's been so much time since I finished writing it. Uh, the book writing process is such a long time, and then it goes into production, and um, that it feels new to Have be you talking about gone it. back and reread it recently? I've reread parts of it. It's difficult to revisit my work, though, because I want to keep editing at infinitum. Right. Um, it's easier for me to edit than it is to actually do the writing, um, but I can't do that now, so. Do you feel, I was going to say, that would be so hard for me, and do you feel like, it, now that it's been like two years, when you go back and read something... Do, do you remember writing those words or do the words ever feel foreign to you? That's a great question. Um, I do remember writing the words. I do remember writing the words and it actually brings me back to a time and place uh, in the same way that like scent or sound or music can invoke this sense of nostalgia. Yeah. There's sometimes that I, I reread a passage and I'm like, oh, I'm in my pajamas in the cabin Aww. upstate writing this passage, I can feel it. I can feel where I am. Now, you got married around this time too, right? I did. It was a big year. <laughs> that is a big year. Yeah. I wrote a book and got married. Um, yeah, all within a six-month period. Whoa. Yeah. Did it take you six months to write this? I'm impressed. No, it took me about, all in all, it took me about a year and a half between writing and editing. That's so impressive though. And then, but what a sweet time to like go back to actually. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if it brings you back like that, that's a sweet time because it's, I mean, it's exciting when you're getting married. I mean, probably stressful too, but also exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. It's nice that I have a, a kind of visceral touchstone to that time and place that I can always revisit and like immediately kind of drop back into what that was like. Yeah. Um, I thought this book was so fun because it's such a practical, you know, anyone who's interested in Buddhism and doesn't feel like they quite grasp it or understand it, or it's just like, oh, I want to understand those concepts better. It was such an interesting way in to kind of talk about these concepts and you outline them so clearly. And when you do the Four Noble Truths, um, and I love that you did it in this way of like, okay, we're going to talk about it meeting your demons. Like you made it very like of today. So thank you. Will you tell everyone the, you know, the story that you start the book with just because they understand a little bit? Because I, right when I read, I'm like, yes, <laughs> because I feel like I have this conversation with people all the time, obviously not with that specific story, but will you tell a little version of the story? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
there is a story that is frequently traded around in meditation circles and, and Buddhist circles. Nobody knows where the story comes from because I, I did oh, my due diligence in researching this book of, of trying to trace everything back to the suttas, like the original teachings. And, um, you know, sometimes they're, they're kind of like extrapolated and, and built on over time, but there's zero reference point to this story. Some people think that it was originated by Joseph Goldstein. Some people think Thich Nhat Hanh was the first person to tell this story. Um, it, it dovetails really nicely with the Buddhist view around working with our emotions, but it, it doesn't go back to the original suttas. So that's interesting. This mystery story um, that is very frequently told is uh, the story of the Buddha and Mara. Uh, and in Buddhist iconography, Mara is kind of like the big bad guy. He's the he's the Buddha's nemesis. Uh, he is the lord of delusion and is sort of the personification of all of our confusion, um, all of our kind of uh deluded or kind of misguided ways of, of thinking or perceiving the world. And he comes to town, the town that the Buddha is teaching in. And it's said that uh, the Buddha's attendants, his monks, his arhats, completely freaked out because <laughs> this demon, the Lord of Delusion, came looking for the Buddha. So they go running down the hill and they're banging on the Buddha's door and they're like, you know, Mara's here, Mara's here, Mara's here. Uh, what should we do? What should we do? Uh, and it's that part of the story that I, I really relate to the most because I think there's something so universal in that freak out moment yep. when we encounter difficult emotions or, you know, less than preferable circumstances. There's kind of that panic or anxiety that sets in. Um, and then the next thing that they do is they start to strategize where they're like, you know, what should we do? Should we like, let's, I, I know, I know what we should do. Let's run. Let's like pack up our begging bowl and, and get out of town. Mara doesn't know that we're here. Uh, and then another monk is like, no, 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 let's hide. Let's hide. Uh, you know, we can go underground. He'll pass by. And then another monk is like, no, 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 let's go on the offensive. Let's attack him. Uh, we know where he is. He doesn't know where we are. Um, and again, so incredibly relatable um, because I know yep. for myself immediately I launch into strategy of this is difficult I do not want to feel it I do not want to deal with it I just want it fixed with the least amount of effort possible right and I love how those are three very different strategies and some people are like that it's automatically either on the attack some it's like how can I ignore and avoid this completely mm -hmm. <laughs> Oh, entirely. Yeah. Entirely. Uh, so what the Buddha does next, um, it kind of lays the groundwork for the book, uh, which is that he says, you know, oh, Mara's here. Okay. Go get him. Bring him to my door and lay out my finest china uh, and invite Mara in for tea. Not as my enemy, but as my esteemed guest. Uh, which is such a radical departure from how I slash we, because I can't imagine that I'm alone in this, <laughs> tend to relate to um, difficult situations, difficult emotions, and, and again, less than preferable circumstances. I mean, I love this because I remember, like, my daughter's four, and so she's always, like, whenever she tries to say, like, no, I can't do that, there's a monster, or what if I go to sleep, there's a monster. It's funny, what I always say is, well, then you got to befriend it. I said, that's your best way, just befriend the monster. And she always, like, looks at me kind of annoyed because she knows, like, that's, like, where it stops. Like, she doesn't get to keep <laughs> going. But when I read this, I was like, oh, it's, like, the similar idea of, like, and I always tell her, I go, the best thing you can do is befriend your worst enemy. Like, I always tell her that. I'm like, just, like, to her, she doesn't understand enemy yet. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, monsters in her world. Um, but it's, I totally agree with that it's even on a practical level not even emotional just with people it's like if you can actually get to know your worst enemy chances are they're not going to be your enemy anymore mm, yeah yeah it's like the old adage it's hard to hate somebody up close right? yes when you actually know them yeah oh my god it would solve so many problems Truly. if we could do that in the world right but talk about it on an emotional level, which, you know, then you go through the Four Noble Truths and go through it of, like, different ways of how you can, you know, invite your emotions to tea. But where do you feel like in your life you remember having to really work on it the most? Like, that moment where you're like, oh, this was an emotion I would have strategized against, and now I invite it to tea, and this is how it feels afterwards. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, growing up and, and especially through my mid to probably late 20s, um, I 
I remember just feeling such a, a deep sense of um, like shame and embarrassment and, and self-criticism. Um, the sense of just being a total fraud and always having <laughs> to kind of like prove myself in the world. Um, and in fact, when I, when I really committed to my meditation practice, I started meditating um, in high school. So uh, like 20 plus years ago to age myself here. Wow. Um, but when I really wow, committed, you're old. No, I'm just I kidding. Know, I was more wow <laughs> than you did in high school. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I am. I'm, I'm aging. Um, yeah. But when I really committed to my meditation practice in like my mid to late twenties, that was the first thing that, that really got the spotlight treatment in my meditation practice is like, wow, I have this mean girl that lives in my head and is continually, um, sort of broadcasting, um, you know, my, my faults to me of, you know, you know, what you just said is so stupid. Oh my gosh, what are they going to think of you? Don't laugh at that. You're not funny. You know, yuck. You know, he he probably is looking at your zit right now. Like just <laughs> this really kind of mean, critical um, aspect of myself that, you know, when we sit down in meditation practice, we uh, get this front row view of our own mind and our own thoughts and emotions. And um, I found that was the first thing that I had to really... Um, sort of uh, approach or um, navigate or negotiate is is just how mean I was to myself, um, which was a big inspiration for writing this book. How, when you were younger, how often were you mean to others in that way? Mm, that's a really great question. Um, very infrequently, I found that I was oftentimes in the role of defender of others and particularly people who um, were in a, a kind of like less fortunate or less powerful circumstance than their aggressors, um, which is interesting that I could do that for others easily, never for myself. Now, it's interesting because one of the things you said in your book, which I found fascinating because you were talking about at some point we all start to you know, put conditions on our worth, like, and that's the thing, you know, it's, you know, we, things are good or bad, they're this or that. And so you start conditioning your own self-worth. And for you, it started when you were 11, which I found really interesting that, you know, especially as a parent, I'm like, you wonder, I mean, I've had this conversation with Nicole too, where I'm like, you see the happiness and the giddiness and you know, one day it's going to switch. You don't know what the reason's going to be, why, if it's something that happens or just an awareness, or you just don't know. It's interesting that you went to 11 like 11 seems pretty like you got pretty far and you, so you were saying you guys didn't have a lot of money often like kind of couch surfing with different families um your mom was like in her 20s trying to like keep it all together which is hard yeah um I mean hats off to her that's really difficult and it sounds like she did a really good job because it took you till 11 to actually start to feel like you wanted quote unquote more and to look a little bit more like what other people's lives probably look like so she somehow she either made it so much fun you didn't realize it was different or she somehow bubbled you away from it, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. And 100% hats off to her. Um, I mean, when I was in my early 20s, I was like you know, doing shots of tequila and dancing on <laughs> bars. Like, I was not raising four children. I don't know how she did it. I know. I mean, think about it. I don't even want to go back to my early 20s to think about that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, I think she... Um, has always and continues to have this real sense of like creativity and, and resourcefulness and um, was sort of a, a, a first model for me of, of meeting difficult situations with this um, like really intrepid spirit of, oh, okay, you know, how can we turn this into a, a, an adventure? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it wasn't until I think 11, I, I really started to kind of um, look for context in terms of my place in the world, like looking at my peers and I would start to hear my, you know, classmates talk about certain things. And there was this sense of like, oh, wait, I don't have those things. And I, I feel like I don't kind of belong in these worlds because I don't have those things. Huh. Um, and very quickly, uh, internalize that of, oh, that means something about me. Like that, that points back to, um, you know, my character or, or who I am in the world. Um, and, you know, much like the monks at the beginning of the story, immediately, even my, my like very young brain started to strategize, um, how to, um, sort of, uh, 
prevent other people from finding out or, you know, how to, how to become a, like a quote unquote winner of, okay, you know, I am on this side of the tracks, which is less preferable. I would like to be on this side of the tracks. So how do I, um, how do I get there? How do I, how do I, how do I get there? Now, and you said you faked your way through it a little, like you said it, like you faked your way. Mm-hmm. How, like, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of it was, um, there was a sort of like splitting in half of self of learning very quickly, like, oh, okay, these are the aspects of myself that I get a lot of praise for. And these are the aspects of myself that people find kind of like endearing and charming and shiny and bright. Okay, I'm going to put all of those aspects of myself on display and really deep, like shove the other aspects of myself, anything that, um, you know, is not as endearing. So like, Um, what would that be? Like in your mind, what parts of you are you shoving down? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, jealousy, anger, um, a lot of shame again, from that kind of internalized narrative of, of like not quite living up to some sort of expectation that I held for myself. Um, definitely perfectionism, a strong perfectionism streak, um, of, um, you know, if, if I can, if I can just organize my life, if I can like rearrange my circumstances to, uh, be perceived by others in a certain way, um, then, then I'll be happy. Then they'll, they'll never find out that I am actually a fraud. Right. And, um, you know, then I'll be, then I'll be happy. I mean, it's what we all want, right? So do you feel like, I mean, you were a prom queen, right? Isn't that what you said? Mm-hmm. So, and even in then you just felt like you didn't deserve prom queen. Yeah. I mean, even, yeah, I definitely felt like I didn't deserve to be a prom queen. No. It's like, what part of you do you feel like if they knew this, I would not get this? Gosh, yeah. If they knew, I mean, if they knew that... Um, yeah, I mean that that self criticism again, like anything, like if they if they knew that I was like actually um, not this smart or not this funny, like I'm just kind of faking my way through life, um, and I. Th- I think in a certain respect I, I was, like I was sort of playing along. I got really keen to um, who others wanted me to, to be, be in order to pass. Um, and I would show up as that. And that meant not showing up as myself fully. And But now it makes sense that you were the defender of people because you probably, in some ways, were you not jealous is not the right word, but if you could see someone being themselves and getting shit on for it, mm-hmm. was there this moment of like, well, they can at least be themselves. Like I can't be myself. So let me like defend them for that. Mm-hmm. Was there like an element of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was probably a really like guttural reaction to, um, yeah, seeing people exactly yeah, get bullied or teased or, uh, for just being themselves. Right. And then that terrifying feeling, if you were yourself, then that's like just reinforcing why you don't want to be yourself. Entirely. Yeah. Ugh. So, (laughs) no, it's hard. Did your mom or anyone see that? Like, could your mom see you like shifting your personality or hiding things? Could anyone or no, it was just typical. Like, I mean, sometimes we do this in our teen years, we get dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I did a really good job because, um, I, I adopted a lot of, Um, I adopted a lot of qualities that get heavy praise. Like I became very kind of like type A and very, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to get the grades and I'm going to have the friends and I'm going to wear the clothes and I'm going to like do all of the things. So she was probably felt like success over there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, she kind of knew, she kind of knew I was faking it, but it, it's easy to pass as like typical teenage behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you feel like you started to really 
Because I feel like no matter what, everyone feels that bubbling up at some point where like all of a sudden you're driving and just crying all the time because you just are like nothing in your insides are matching up to who you actually are. Mm. And it's always usually in the 20s, no matter who or what. (laughs) I mean, it is. I feel like that's the identity crisis because people are like, who am I? But like, do you remember like moments of that for you, of whatever it was for you? Oh, entirely. Entirely. Yeah. I moved to, I moved to New York City when I was 20 um, and around... I want to say 24, 25, uh, started having very public panic attacks. Public ones. Ooh, yeah. I mean, really. Um, and if anybody, you know, who's listening to this has <laughs> had a panic attack, like I, I really feel for you. It, it feels like your insides are, are, are like caving in. Um, and yeah, I found myself on the subway. I found myself at work. I found myself like out on dates. I, I just couldn't hold it together what was your first one? Like, do you remember your first one? Because you never had panic attacks before. I had never had panic attacks before. Yeah, my very first one I remember um, was when I was waitressing at the Olive Garden. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 22 years old. Breadsticks. Uh, breadsticks, <laughs> minestrone soup. Um, yeah, I was 22 years old. I was waiting tables at the Olive Garden in Times Square. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's busy and crazy. Busy and crazy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was during a slow moment of, of dinner service. And um, I don't even know what provoked it. I don't remember the circumstances, but I remember locking myself in the walk-in freezer where we kept all of the desserts and just hyperventilating. In the uh, freezer? In the freezer, um, feeling like I was having a heart attack. I had no context for what a panic attack was and I just could not catch my breath. How did you come down? Did you have anyone to help you? No. Um, no, I mean, definitely not. One of my greatest strategies has always been like, I'm fine. Right. Nobody needs to help me. I've got it all together. I am the strong one. Um, yeah, which is probably why my impulse was to lock myself in a freezer. I mean, I feel like you made it more dangerous. <laughs> so did you just finally catch your breath? I did, yeah. I, I like curled up. The cold probably helped, helped you, actually. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And so you curled up. I curled up um, next to the white chocolate cheesecake. At least there's that. tiramisu. <laughs> yeah, there's that You went least. to the dessert <laughs> versus like a big like rack of something. You know, which I never put two and two together. It was like, tea and literal cake Cake. yeah with my demons in that freezer I mean yeah you sat down but but you weren't yet inviting them in that moment absolutely not did you get up and leave as if nothing happened and you were just looking for the desserts yep as if nothing happened yeah um yeah it wasn't until yeah about 25 25 years old my roommate at the time um who actually now lives in LA um, was taking classes at a small Buddhist nonprofit um, down on Houston, uh, Bowery and Houston, called the Interdependence Project. Uh, and she said, you know, we have these meditation classes three times a week. I know you used to meditate back in high school. You are clearly, to me at least, not holding it together very well meditation might actually be really helpful so what did she see like that's interesting like from her point of view what was she seeing yeah I mean I think because we lived together and we were dear friends you know she was a bit of a confidant I felt like I could let my guard down a little bit um yeah and she could tell that you were just it sounds like your nervous system was just fried I think my nervous system was fried and so much of it sure living in New York City but doesn't help doesn't help um but it was I had place so many expectations on myself and you know now I can look back on that and say uh quarter life crisis the sense of you know I'm not where I thought that I sh- would be at this point in my life you know I'm, I'm single I'm broke I'm you know I don't know what I want to do with my life I feel completely unclear I don't know what my path is what's my purpose <laughs> um like all of these big questions meanwhile just trying to like make rent and survive and and by the way I love it because your book tackles like all those questions like literally living in purpose not purpose like the expectations that's funny but and a quarter life crisis cracks me up because most people in their 20s are exactly there Mm -hmm. almost all of them I mean every once in a while you have the few that figured it out but so many are there so it's funny that it's like such an epidemic because you want to be like no one's alone like everyone but I guess it's because of those expectations people pretend a lot Mm -hmm. and so no one fully 
sees it. Yeah. And like, it's a long road. Yeah, it is a long road. Um, and uh, you know, a part of why I use the four noble truth as a, a framework for this book is I was just going to ask you that, um, because, you know, first noble truth, the truth that, um, we will experience a lot of dissatisfaction in our lives from many different angles. Like this is a, a, a truth of a human experience. Um, there's something that kind of takes the uniqueness of that situation. Right. Out. Like there's nothing unique about this. It might feel like you are completely alone, alone. and that no one has ever suffered the way that you so have. So you're never going to be able to recover because how could you? Right. How could one? Absolutely. And this is something that for, you know, 2,600 years has really kind of held up because um, it, it points to something so universal about the human experience. That it is. It, you don't get the good without the bad. Yeah, entirely. And, you know, and I, I, I found that really interesting. You know, there's a story you tell, but I think it's more for the second noble truth. But I, I really loved it for that reason, which where the woman was that she lost her newborn, I think. It was mm-hmm. she lost her newborn. And she's basically going and begging for, like, the miracle of can you bring him back. Yeah. And I love that he says, you know, he finally actually says, yes, but. And the but is she has to go to every door and knock on every single door in the town, I think. I mean, correct me when I'm, like, going off, but on every town and just ask, have you experienced any major loss? And then come back. Mm -hmm. And so by the time she does this, everyone had in some shape or form, maybe not exactly like hers, but they'd experienced something. By the time she circled back, I mean, the feeling of just not being so alone Mm -hmm. or feeling so unique and knowing, I feel like there's a confidence then in knowing you're also going to get to the other side because if all of these people have gone through it and are still standing, and I'm sure some probably standing very well, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think there's a comfort in that. It was such a beautiful story, and I, I, it was like one of my favorite stories. I was like, oh, that's such a great story because, again, it's we live in such a egocentric society, and I don't mean that in the like, oh, I'm amazing, but in we always think we're the only ones, and it only happens to me, or I'm the only one who can do whatever it is. And it's with suffering, yeah, I think when people feel such disconnect from society, from people, from whatever it is you believe in, it's so hard to move forward. Yeah, entirely, entirely. Yeah, that I mean, that is kind of the flip side to um, recognizing the the truth of suffering or the the truth of dissatisfaction is that um, it can be a really uniting force of oh, I I'm experiencing grief, I'm experiencing turmoil, just like you. And just like you, and just like you, and just like you, and and that if we really are able to sort of relax into the universality of that, um, not only does it have the potential to take the sting out of our particular situation, um, but it can also be a really powerful gateway to empathy. Right. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the surface. You know, every single one of us are are holding something. Um, that is really uncomfortable or painful. I mean, it's so true. I, it's, I've said this on the show before a few times, whenever you kind of get these like sad, depressed people, they're so convinced that nothing bad happens to happy people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seriously convinced. It's always like, they just write it off like with blame and annoyance, like whatever, they have it easy. They have this, they have that. And it's, and it's such an unfair, I understand like when you're in that space, it's hard to see it differently, but you're, you're actually taking away the one credit that everybody deserves, which is you drive your own car and you drive your own life and you create it. And so whether it's a negative or a positive, you're in that driver's seat. And it doesn't mean things don't happen, but it's, you know, like you said, one of the beautiful things that can come out of suffering is empathy. Mm-hmm. If you so choose yeah. to let it. Entirely, entirely. And to your point, I mean, something that I personally have found so refreshing about um, like these core Buddhist teachings is that there is a heavy emphasis on taking responsibility for ourselves and our lives, taking responsibility for our emotions, for our mind, um, for the way that we relate to the world, the way that we participate in the world. Um, And um, that itself is an entire path of practice. Yeah, and I love that because, I mean, that's kind of the three and four, right, for the noble truths. It's like practice and then you draw, you're in charge. How often, because the one thing I, I find it fascinating, and you address this in the book, that it starts with such suffering. Mm-hmm. And I get it, and I liked what you said in the book too. Well, it's, you know, it's an invitation for people to realize, like, 
it's, it's just a given and you're not alone. Um, how often do you feel like some people get stuck in the first two truths? Mm, yeah. Cause I've heard it like, and I've, I've talked about this a little bit too, where sometimes, sometimes where I struggle with the suffering is when you hear people just dwell on this. It's just a lot of talk about the suffering and not that we shouldn't. I mean, like you said, that's inviting your demons mm-hmm. to tea. We don't want to do the, you know, avoid it and pretend I'm good and like pretend that they don't exist. But then there's the other one, which is the overanalyzation, which is when you talk about it so much. And then I feel like sometimes the suffering expands and invites more suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, going back to what you said of like, um, you know, so much egotism in our society, um, you know, that in itself can be a, 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 a form of ego grasping. Anytime that we uh, internalize something to the point that it is, we self-identify it, we, we so strongly self-identify with it, um, it becomes who we perceive ourselves to be in the world. And, and for some of us, we really self-identify so strongly with our suffering and with our trauma. It's the thing that makes us special, Right. You know, of like, but no, I had a terrible childhood. Right. I went through this. Absolutely. I can't, I can't give that up. This is, this is like the thing that has shaped me and made me. And, and I think there can be, you know, second noble truth. One of the things that, um, causes so much dissatisfaction or causes so much suffering is our like attachment and grasping to our circumstances. And then we, um, self-identify with, with those circumstances that we're grasping onto. Um, and I, I think, you know, we can oftentimes think that we're only kind of grasping or self-identifying with the good stuff. Um, right. But the less than preferable stuff, um, we can also kind of grasp onto. And, um, I think it's, it's helpful to, to remember that um, we will never lose that. What has happened to us is ours. Um, and that will always fundamentally inform who we are and what has shaped us. Uh, however, the entirety of the path is how do we work with that in a skillful way so that it doesn't get sort of um, hardened into this like self-identified fixation. It's so true because I think what comes with that is the blame game. Mm-hmm. Like it's so much easier to blame and then like we were just saying, take responsibility for the direction and the path of your life. So it's the, not only is it self-identifying, it's so much easier to be like, my parents fucked up. My mom, you know, like you so lovely said, yeah, she was 23. I was partying. I was this, but it's so e- much easier to be like, can you imagine my mom made us stay in a garage and like just dwell on that constantly. And, and I feel like the blame game is so dangerous Mm -hmm. it's the same thing I've said it too I'm like that again they're always yours it's always part of your story but it's like your origin story but then from that point like what destination do you want to go you can hover and circle over that origin for the rest of your life if you want to Mm -hmm. but then you're missing like all the land beyond you know and it's so but the blame game I find so dangerous and it's so easy and it's it's much easier for people because the idea of being like oh my sadness and my is not only about my, like I can, I can actually maybe shift this sadness. I can't just say this trauma is the sole reason for this sadness. Like I have to take responsibility for it. Mm -hmm. That's like a hard task for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I honestly think that a lot of people don't even know where to start with that. Like we just get into these loops, right? We get into these habit loops, like habits of action, habits of thinking. Um, and it can be really difficult to like figure out how to get out of that cycle. So where would, like, where, how do you start? Yeah. How do you start? I mean, I'm obviously biased, but, <laughs> you know, meditation is really yeah. helpful. It's really helpful because it, um, you know, I, I think we're saying, okay, I'm going to take, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes to just be with myself in an unadulterated way yeah. without a lot of external stimulus. Um, and what we'll find when we spend enough time with ourselves um, is that there are these kind of patterns or, or cycles of thought. Um, and we can see that play out on the meditation cushion. And it can be a real revelation in the same way that I like saw how mean I was to myself when nothing else was going on. I'm just sitting on the meditation cushion. And so for cushion. you, what did that look like? What was the point of view? Like just to give someone a practical thing, was it 
flashbacks of something or was it you being mean to yourself on the pillow like while you were sitting on the cushion Mm -hmm. like how did that play out for you that you got to have that revelation yeah um yeah it was more like um you know the like sportscaster that's always kind of um Mm -hmm. like orating what's happening yeah um it was it was kind of like that voice of like oh you know and now they just rolled their eyes (laughs) oh and now they just um yeah and I would find myself sitting on the, the meditation cushion a with that voice but then b kind of like rehashing everything like thinking through the contents of my day or through the week and being like oh you're so stupid I can't believe you did that that's oh my gosh you know you're such a dummy I can't (laughs) you're such a mess up okay now this person knows that you're a mess up and I just at some point was like shh enough shut up enough (laughs) shut up um, but you're from Wisconsin. You're too nice. I'm from New Jersey. I would have said, "Shut the fuck up." <laughs> it's like, um, excuse me. Can you please can you do quiet my, down? Do in you there? mind if you just take a moment and give me some peace and quiet? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I think you know, off off the meditation cushion, and you know, you obviously. I mean, not obviously, but but I imagine. I assume. I could be wrong, um, but I assume. Um, also, know this that. Uh, the, the beauty of meditation practice, the, the kind of point or the p- purpose of meditation practice is that once that um, self-awareness sets in and we develop this kind of like metacognition of, of always um, having a mind that is aware of itself, um, we can see what our mind is doing throughout the day. It's like, oh, this voice follows me everywhere. It is really fascinating when you actually can almost start narrating your own like you see it Mm -hmm. it's like you're the third person to your day yeah yeah it's really trippy it's really trippy and then I think you know that critical moment is um without repressing my thoughts how do I just learn to kind of like gently redirect them or or sort of like re-navigate and I do think that like you said it's critical and it's gentle because you know some people, when you try and talk, they're like, well, now you're telling me not to feel it. It's like, no, 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 you want them to feel it. Again, it's that balance of understand it, mm-hmm. feel it, take care of it, like mm-hmm. parent it, like we were, you know, be its parent, but then be able to keep going yeah. where it's not weighting you down and holding you down like an anchor. Yeah, entirely, entirely. And, you know, one of my favorite questions that comes up in class is, um, like, why would I ever want to Spend time right. with my anxiety. Like, no. Right, bye. Exactly. <laughs> Not fun. Like, going to think about something else now. No, but go into that. That's actually a great question. Um, yeah. Why would we ever want to sit with our, our difficult emotions and our difficult thought? Um, you know, I think exactly like you said, is that it provides the opportunity for us to, to relate to those emotions and those thoughts in a, in a completely different way, which is one of gentleness and one of friendliness. Um, because I don't, I don't know about you, but anything that I spend enough time with in a kind of like open, non-judgmental way and develop familiarity with, um, it takes the sting out of it. It does. Right? It takes the bite out where it's like, okay, here's anxiety. Hi. Right. I know who you are. It's so true. And the more you understand your anxiety too, it's like, you can feel it the second it's even going to start, which I think is different too. Cause I think for a lot of people, if you're not familiar with it, then all of a sudden you're in it yeah. and it's so much harder to get out of it once you're in it. But if you can feel it like tapping on your shoulder, Mm -hmm. it's so much easier to be like, Oh, Hey, like not now it's not going to happen now. Like, because you just don't have to play the game because you can see it or you can see it and notice, Oh, this is what's about to start happening. And then you can ride it easier. If it doesn't, if it chooses to still come, it's your way. Then at least you can ride it easier because you you now can dance with it because you have a relationship mm-hmm. and it's it is so true I, I try and say that also I feel it all the time like I can tell when I wake up sometimes you just wake up and I'm like what the fuck is going on like I'm like what where is this coming from and sometimes I don't even have a reason where it's coming from it's not usually anxiety for me but regardless whether it be a stress feeling or I can just tell I'm being wired like just everything feels wound too tight that day mm-hmm. And I can take care of it because I just, it's like the warning bell went on versus me all of a sudden being in it and like unraveling my life and yelling at people. Yeah. 
Yep, entirely, entirely. I think you just hit the bullseye there, is that gentle tap on the shoulder yeah. rather than whoosh, be yeah. completely blindsided. Right? <laughs> Which is, it's true. You know, you um, you said there was something, and I forget what the word is, and I loved it, where, um, and I should know the word probably, um, how that everything inherently has its own knowing. Intellicky? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, or maybe I just didn't know how to pronounce it. But, um, and I love that because I think about that a lot. And I'm always like, and maybe it's because I'm a parent. So I always think, really, what's the point of parenting? And I don't say that anyone who knows me as a parent knows I parent. But sometimes I'm like, am I parenting too much? Because I do agree, we all have inherent sense of knowing. And it evolves at different times for us. And it, it, it changes at different times. Um, and if we can go with that flow is actually the beauty of life. Like when you can actually trust that and then go with it, it actually, a lot of this other shit we're talking about kind of just drops away on its own. So then it goes back to, okay, so with kids and parenting, what is the, like, how much are you supposed to do? What is the point? Do you know what I mean? Because, like, how much are these beings really knowing they're just going to have to do it their way regardless? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, there's something kind of... It's trippy to think about. Yeah, like <laughs> cosmic. Like, oh, you are a fully, like, whole, complete, sufficient human being with your own wisdom and insight and intelligence and and it's going to rise and it's going to ebb and flow and you're probably going to get the lessons to increase what you need so as a parent you're just like huh (laughs) you know what I mean yeah because I agree I think you're right just like you said there's animals that figure I mean they figure out how to walk by themselves because that's what they have to do or turtles are like the most amazing if you think about it I mean they hatch from an egg and they just know exactly what direction they're supposed to go and why they're supposed to go and it doesn't always mean they make it but like (laughs) it's like that innate it's like you just it's the knowing yeah it's the knowing it's the knowing yeah yeah I mean I'm not a parent I was gonna say if you ever decide to have kids that's gonna keep you up at night now seriously (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) thank you (laughs) but it was an interesting thought of again how much of like us parenting too much actually ends up creating some of this separation feeling and these, you know, good and bad and having to, you know, so much what I love about when you were talking about all the Buddhist teachings and the Four Noble Truths, ultimately I feel like it falls into kind of the binary system. Mm -hmm. So it's like navigating this binary system of good and bad polarities. And like Nicole's so sick of hearing me talk about it because I've been like obsessed with talking about polarities lately and just where I feel like our society is shifting in slowly, Mm -hmm. but into a world where non-polarity is really the existence and you can feel, I, I feel like we feel it really tightly right now, the struggle of like the old system versus the new. Yeah. Um, and it seems so much of what like reading the Four Noble Truths was about that, like fighting it within yourself, mm-hmm. you know, identifying yourself to one of the polarities, good or bad. Um, and until you can learn to rest somewhere in that gray, mm-hmm. there's always going to be a struggle attached to it. Oh, entirely. I mean, there's implicit tension there in this is good, this is bad. I want this, I don't want that. You know, advertising knows it so well. You just you brilliantly. Only, it brilliantly is like, you know, have the thing that you want without sacrificing blah, blah, blah. Right. It's like lose 20 pounds without giving up the foods Taste. that you love. Right. <laughs> um, it's like there's always some sort of experience that we want to be having uh, and some sort of experience that we want to be avoiding and that our, our primary attention lives right in the crosshairs of that. I mean, that's the second noble truth. That is actually the cause of dissatisfaction, the cause of suffering, is that we have this, this real kind of like push-pull in the polarities that's happening all the time. And for me, the, the definition of, of mindfulness that I connect to the most, and I know there's many ways of talking yep. about it. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, um, describes mindfulness or defines it as being the awareness that arises when we're paying attention on purpose in the present moment and without judgment or non-judgmentally. And it's that it's it's putting the spotlight on how frequently we judge our experience on that binary of like, I like this, I don't like this. This is for me, this is against me. This is a yes, this is a no. This is delicious, this is disgusting. I want this, I don't want that. Um, And how we kind of like live in that cross section um, as, yeah, that's the struggle. 
And it's like, it goes from the minute to like what you were saying. It's like, I look good. I don't look good. I'm smart enough. I'm not smart enough. Like, do I have the house? Do I not have the house? Do I have the job? Do I not have the job? It, again, no one can go in the gray. It's like either this or that. Mm-hmm. They're either good or they're bad. And it, it makes my whole body cringe. It's like when they everyone starts tearing everyone else down. And that's like in the bigger thing and you feel it. And it almost like society doesn't almost allow you mm-hmm. to rest in the gray. It's like if you don't have the opinion then you're almost automatically seceding to having the opposite opinion of whoever you're talking to. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's like yeah. so, so many people can't allow other people to also be in the gray. So if they're choosing to live in the gray, in their minds, they're just not living on their side of the polarity. They're just living on the opposite side of it, mm-hmm. thus pushing them into the polarity again. Yeah. It's like an interesting thing happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the second noble truth, again, the the cause of suffering, cause of dissatisfaction, um, really highlights how fixated we are on our preferences. Yes. Like, this is my definition of good. And so it is anything that's not in definition it. of good. Well, you talked about also the pinprick. Is it the pinprick point of view? Mm-hmm. Which I really liked because I was like, yes, this is so much of the problem it's like we all have whether we want to admit it or not but it's just the way we're raised we have like it's like if you put a pinprick in a piece of fabric that's your one point of view but that fabric's huge so there's a million pinpricks and it's like whoever comes to which pinprick that is like the prism from which they look at everything but again it's anything it's where were you raised what do you look like are you male are you female what were your parents like how was your child I mean all these things start to form this little pinprick but it's not even so much of a pin it starts to just bleed into everything like you said the polarity is the right or wrong and you start forcing other people it's not even just like this it's not even just the parameters you're putting on yourself which take you so much further away from like pure happiness you're now putting them on other people indirectly because yes because you think you're fighting for what's right you think you're doing the just thing right that's what's so fucked up about it yeah it is and hard to unravel absolutely for people absolutely um and again it goes back to that kind of like ego clinging or ego fixation of we so heavily self-identify with like well this is my experience so this is the experience period and 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 anything that deviates from that um requires a little um kind of leap of imagination on our part right um of of placing ourselves in a, a different perspective one that we don't know because we didn't you know grow up under those circumstances or we didn't have those experiences um and so it requires kind of like this this leap to see things through somebody else's pinprick yes and it would be really lovely if people would take that leap. Yeah, it's definitely not as easy. I mean, holding it's paradox, not. you know. Well, it is because, again, it's not even so much like the pinprick. It becomes webbed into their, like, cellular DNA of, I mean, we could take this, like, what's going on in the Middle East. It's like, it's just, it gets so webbed into, like, your DNA, your cellular level of what is right or wrong. It's mm-hmm. hard to even have that moment because, you again, you feel like you're failing, a whole system by listening. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that, and then in that, in that, just having that understanding of people, you know, it's one thing you said early in the book, which I love too, of, you know, Buddha is, was a human. And I think it's one of the reasons why I feel like Buddhism will be around forever. There were a couple things that you were talking about in this book that I'm like, oh yeah, that's what keeps it steady in a great way. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, there's so many lineages, but a, he was a human. He wasn't a god, though I think a lot of us perceive him as a god, but he wasn't a god. And also the fact that I think it's the fourth noble truth, too. Like you said, it's the practice and it's the questioning, right? The fourth noble truth is your is the journey and the questioning and always asking questions, which I love. So even within this lineage, you're being given permission to question it. Yeah, entirely, entirely. It's like, okay, let's develop a working understanding of... Um, suffering dissatisfaction like let's let's first develop a relationship with that um and then let's take a look at at the causes for this right is like if we're experiencing a lot of dissatisfaction if we're experiencing suffering just as a part of the human condition there's a really good reason for it which is the second noble truth and that brings us to the binary um our attachments our fixation um our uh, aversion to attachment not getting what it wants um and then ignorance which underlies the entire foundation and it's the ignorance of self-identification right. of this is this is who I 
um, believe myself to be, and I, I have to defend that at all costs. Um, and third noble truth is, you know, good news. There's a way <laughs> off of this hamster wheel. Um, it's like phew. <laughs> and fourth noble truth is, you know, okay, now that we've laid that foundation, um, here are, um, you know, the the eightfold path, the the ways of of working with this in your real life, like where feet hit the ground in your day-to-day life. Um, It isn't, you know, some kind of like conceptual ideology. There's a real encouragement of like, bring this out in your life, test it out, like see where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Yeah. But you did say it's the questioning, which, and because you talk a lot about the difference of like a journey and a goal. Yeah. And it's like when you can get rid of the goal and kind of just be on there and question. But I appreciated that because I do feel like so much, I mean, it's one of the reasons that Den exists is, you know, multi-lineage, make sure people learn what works for them, always be questioning and see what is the best version for you to keep growing. And it might change in times, um, but you're the only one with the answers. Like there's not one person who can tell you how to do it. And so I love that like inherently within the lineage itself is the questioning, Mm -hmm. which I think is what makes it so human and forever evolving in a great way. Because, you know, look, we're at a time where a lot of gurus are falling. Yeah. Um, And I keep saying it for a reason, for a right reason. Um, And the fact that he, he was human himself and doesn't pretend not to be. It was like, I love that. Even you were saying through the story, like he finally realized like, how can we have a spiritual like ascension while also being able to like live in the life, like not have to like remove ourselves. You know, it's, you know, in Kundalini, we always say it's a householder's Mm -hmm. practice. Like it's it's a household. I feel like it's very similar that way. It's a householder's practice. Like this isn't about, yes, you can go be a monk. Absolutely. That's part of the lineage too, (laughs) but you don't have to. Yeah. Um, you don't have to. And I think that's pretty amazing actually. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, um, there's a Zen story that I I love so much, um, which is not in the book. Um, Oh good. Well then tell us. Uh, so, uh, Zen story, uh, Zen master, Shitu, uh, I want to say sixth century Zen master. Uh, and the story goes like all of these stories tend to go where you have to like climb over mountains and go <laughs> through rivers and jungles and forests to find your teacher, right? Like you have to go on this spiritual expedition to go find your teacher. So, uh, there's a student who's going to look for Shitu, this, you know, renowned Zen master, um, and, and finally finds Shitu meditating on a rock somewhere, uh, and says, um, uh, where is Buddha mind? And uh, it's another way of saying, you know, Buddha, Buddha nature or this inherent wholeness, this inherent worth that every single one of us possess fundamentally. Uh, so the student says, where is it? Where, where is this like basic goodness, this, this, this Buddha mind? Um, and she too turns to the student and says, you don't have it. <laughs> which is so shady and like really really cracks me up um, because to say you know every single human being just by virtue of being human is in possession of inherent dignity and buddha nature uh turns to the student and says you don't have it and the student says but i run around and have ideas and she too says people who run around and have ideas have buddha mind And the student says, well, why don't I? And she too says, because you are unwilling to remain human. And Mm. it's this sense of you're looking for it elsewhere. Not in yourself. You're looking, you're looking for, you know, the thing or the teacher or the teaching or the, you know, you're looking to acquire this thing that you already have. And if, if you don't uh, recognize that it's actually within you, then you don't have it. Oh, I oh, know. Isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful. Harsh teaching, but uh-huh. beautiful. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Some teachers can do it that way. Um, but it's so true. And it's like, I think that's what's so beautiful. And I mean, I'm telling you, anyone who, it, it, you, you really did simplify in a beautiful way um, the teachings. And I think it's, it's really nice that that is the sense you get when you read these teachings, that it is all accepting and like we all have the ability. And again, it goes back to what we started the conversation with, like you drive this car, this is your journey, your life, and you can make it really whatever you want it to be. Um, This will help you 
guide and like, you know, it's a little GPS system maybe. Um, but it's in you already. It's just finding it and kind of uncovering it. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. Do you feel like, what are your stories you still tell yourself that you're still working on? Mm, great question. Uh, stories. Well, I'm a little bit of a workaholic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a little bit of a workaholic. Um, you know, still perfectionism. I think that's probably going to be with me for a lifetime. Um, and and I, I think, you know, again, something that I find really refreshing about these teachings is like, don't try to get rid of it. Like, don't try to discard it. That's you. The work is to work with it. And it's through inviting these aspects to tea, um, like really that self-acceptance that just by accepting something, it changes it. And also like every single thing has a good and a bad. Mm -hmm. So like there's amazing things about being like, once you learn to not let the parts that can really harm you or hurt you or like physically make you not you know, well, it's like, then there's great things about having like dedication and passion and wanting, I mean, there's amazing qualities to that too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think the thing that has really softened it for me is, is kind of like loosening up that self-identification around it. Right. It's like, even if it doesn't kind of meet my, my standard of excellence, you know, my expectation happened with me too, of what I think that it should be. Um, that's okay because it doesn't mean anything about me. Well, you t- it's in the book, too, about um, kind of success and failure. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting, too, about the idea of, I mean, there really is no failure if you're kind of going along with it. And it's just once you, again, can get out of that, you know, binary, you know, dissatisfaction and self-blaming and self-identification, you, you kind of realize that. Yeah, absolutely. Like nope. You could work your ass off on something, and if it doesn't work, it's probably for a reason. And it doesn't mean you didn't learn a million things from it or get a million things from it. It just might not have had the outcome you wanted attached to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, from this perspective, there is no failure. There's only, there's only feedback. Everything is material. Would you say the Zen proverb, which I really like to, everything is workable. Mm-hmm. What is it? There's nothing. What is, I think I wrote it down somewhere. Hold on. All is workable. Nothing is wasted or lost. Yeah. Yeah, everything is material. Um, I mean, I think it's very similar to anybody who is a creative, like a writer or has any kind of creative creative practice. It's like everything is material. Everything that you encounter is yeah. grist for the mill. Uh, and from this perspective, everything that we encounter in our life as the path um, is workable. Everything is material. For sure. Um, let's do your four yous. Okay. So a book that changed your life. Hmm. Great question. Um, there's an essay, um, Slouching Towards Bethlehem mm-hmm. by Joan Didion, uh, classic Californian. Um, <laughs> she has an essay called On Self-Respect that was published in Vogue back in 1961 and then ended up in this collection of essays. Um, and it's one of those essays that I go back to so frequently. Oh, it's like, oh, I just need to touch in with Auntie Joan. Like I just, Auntie Joan. I just, I just need to read this essay. Like remind me. <laughs> I love that. What does your daily practice look like? Um, 20 minutes in the morning, uh, 20 minutes in the evening. Um, if I have a lot of flexibility, flexibility in my day, I like to practice for a full hour. Um, mostly just shamatha, mindfulness of breath. Um, I find, yeah, just sticking with one thing over and over and over again. Insight breeds repetition. Also, I, f- I liked when you were talking about the breath, how, you know, and it is true, it's like one of the first meditations pretty much anyone learns. But I liked how you also said it's just symbolic of like the impermanence, mm-hmm. just the cycle of life. I was like, oh, I never thought about it that way, which I really liked. It's just kind of fleeting. It comes, it goes, it fills you, it empties you. Like, mm-hmm. I-, I thought that was really beautiful. Um, what is your current obsession? Current obsession. Good question. Current obsession. I'm, you know, I'm perpetually obsessed with my dog. Mm, what kind uh, of dog? Winston. He's just a mutt. Love it. Yeah. He's just like a Tennessee street dog. <laughs> um, yeah. What else have I been obsessed with? Um, I mean, right now I'm obsessed with the feeling that I get driving in Los Angeles. Every time I park the car after being on the highway, I'm like, I did <gasps> it. <laughs> I am a champion. It's a lot. It's a lot. If you're not used to it, it's for sure a lot. Yeah. It's really wide freeways, lots of cars. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of texting. Lots of texting. <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> yeah, it's a problem. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? Uh, where would I live? Um, I would live in, in northern New Mexico. Yeah, I would live in northern New Mexico. I've had many conversations about this with my husband who... Um, Does not want to live in northern New Mexico. Definitely <laughs> not. I was on a writing retreat when I was writing the book. I, I took like a little self-writing retreat in Santa Fe and he came to visit me for the weekend. He's like, no. No, I've Santa never Fe, seen... Santa you're either very into it or you're not. Yeah. I've never heard... I've never felt anyone in the middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. People either love it or they're like, mm, no thanks. I would actually file that under obsession. I love northern New Mexico. Oh, good. Yeah, like maybe even a little bit north, like Abiquiu area. Ooh. I know. It's very special to me. Do you guys meditate together? Uh, not really. We have different practices. Yeah, we have different practices. He's a Vajrayana practitioner, um, and I'm just a layman. Oh. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> very funny. You're amazing. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you. She's going to do her personal practice, so stay tuned. Um, but thank you so much, and thank you for this book. And it, does it feel like you birthed the baby? A little bit. You know, it's out in the world having relationships with people completely independently of me. It's Is wild. it weird to see, like, notes in people's books? It is. And sometimes I'll get emails from people who are like, oh my gosh, I love when you wrote this thing. And you don't even remember it. I'm like, I did. I don't think I wrote that. I don't think I wrote that. But I'm so glad that you found whatever you needed to find in this book. No, but I bet you did write it. You might not like, or maybe they took it a different way. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. It that does. Is. Right? I do believe this stuff all becomes its own. Completely. Yeah, I love that it's just, it's having its own best book life <laughs> out in the world. <laughs> Living its best book life. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Tal. No, this, this has been great. Yeah, I same. appreciate it. So now Adriana is going to lead us in her personal practice, which will be a breath meditation. Right. So let's begin just by finding a comfortable seat, something that feels really sturdy supported and once we've landed it's taking a moment to locate our gaze so either eyes open or eyes closed and if we are practicing with eyes open it's letting the gaze be soft hazy unfocused almost as though we're looking through space not at anything directly and if we're practicing with eyes closed it's maintaining a sense of being alert and awake. And we'll take just a moment here to open practice by opening our senses. It's locating ourselves in space. And turning the attention to sound. It's receiving the sounds of the space that you're in. Shifting the attention to touch. So taking a moment to drop into the body. The weight of the body against the floor, the chair. Texture of clothing on the skin. Feeling where the body makes contact. Bringing the attention to the belly and the chest. Just establishing contact with the body breathing. So very little effort needed here. Just feeling the way the breath moves in the body today by its own volition. Tip of the nose, back of the throat, belly. And wherever, however, the breath is most easily felt in the body. It's dropping an anchor of attention here home base, the place that we return to. And 
And we'll take a few moments to work with the singular instruction that as our minds wander, which they naturally will, just noticing when we've left our breathing, acknowledging what captures our attention, and then gently, firmly coming back to the breath in the body. So as we settle into practice, likely getting a pretty clear sense of our quality of mind today, this front row view of our own interior state. Maybe we find that we're practicing with a particularly spacey mind or restless mind, planning mind, whatever quality of mind we're working with, seeing if we can soften any edge of self-aggression in the sense that it should somehow be different or better, whatever that means. And instead, just allowing ourselves to work with our mind as it is, sincerely at this moment, Again, noticing, acknowledging, and feeling the body breathe. And then in our final few moments of practice here, perhaps just closing out with a little bit of sweetness, extending some thanks to ourselves, maybe a kind word or giving ourselves a little bit of credit for taking the time, making the space, treating our own company like it matters. And then as we're ready, just allowing formal practice to drop and coming back in together at your own pace, no rush. Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.